Section 10 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in June 2020. The Outline of Science, Volume 4 by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 30 Electric and Luminous Organisms. Energy, as we have seen in a previous chapter, is the power of doing work, or of changing the state of motion of a body. It takes many forms, such as heat, light, electricity, energy of movement, energy of position, and chemical energy. These are transformable into one another, and they are transferable from one body to another body, but no energy is ever lost. The energy of the burning coal may drive a dynamo which generates electricity which lights a street, but, however much energy may be transformed or transferred, when any quantity of one form disappears, a precisely equal quantity simultaneously appears in some other form or forms. Just as with matter, you cannot create or destroy any quantity of energy, however small, and since energy is the great worker of the universe, you cannot get something for nothing. This is the general idea of the conservation of energy, which must be borne in mind in thinking about those animals, like the electric eel, that can give an electric shock, and those animals and plants that can produce a brilliant light, like fireflies and some bacteria. No living creature produces any new energy, all that can be done is to change one form of energy into another. Paragraph 1. Luminous Plants It is well known that fishes hung up to dry are often brightly luminous in the dark. The same appearance is often seen on dead flesh, and it has been familiar since the time of Aristotle. But the discovery of the cause of the light is modern. It is due to some kind of bacterium which is living very intensely on the fish or flesh and is giving forth light as a by-product of its activity. The chemical energy of the bacteria is being changed into light energy. About 30 different kinds of luminous bacteria are known, one of the commonest being Bacterium phosphoreum. They occur in a great variety of situations, including wounds on the human body, and have often given rise to superstitious interpretations. Apart from bacteria, there is light production in some of the molds and other fungi. Thus, in the south of Europe, there is a well-known luminous toadstool, Agaricus olearius, that grows at the foot of olive trees, and there are many other cases. In some forms, the light is produced only by the fine threads, mycelium, of the fungus, in others, the whole of the disk of the toadstool shines. The luminosity of rotting wood, which interested Aristotle, is due to the spreading threads of a fungus, and some roots, e.g. those of the common tormentil, potentilla tormentilla, of our hill pastures, are likewise penetrated by shining filaments. The same explanation applies to the decaying leaves of beech and oak, which may sometimes be seen glimmering on the ground in the darkness. Small yellowish-white spots on the other side of the beech leaves mark the headquarters of the microscopic threads of a luminous fungus. Chapter 2. 
In decaying wood and leaves, the light is due to fungoid threads, not to bacteria, but great care must be taken to make sure that the luminescence in any particular instance is due to the fungus and not to some associated bacteria. For, as a separate article makes clear, bacteria have a finger in many a pie. It is time to drop the word phosphorescence altogether in reference to living lights, for they have nothing to do with phosphorus. In dim recesses among the rocks there lives the so-called luminous moss, but its gleaming is merely the reflection of the sparse rays of daylight from reflecting surfaces of somewhat lens-like skin cells. The lens-like structure is an adaptation to make the most of the little light that is going, for light is everything to a green plant. The shining appearance that suggests light production is, so to speak, an incidental phenomenon, meaning no more than the shining of the cat's eyes in the dark. For those cat's eyes have, we feel assured, no power of producing light, they are merely light reflecting. This is due to a strongly developed mirror-like layer, tapetum, at the back of the cat's eye, the significance of which is not to make the eye shine in the dark, but to enable the cat to make the most of the little light there is available during its nocturnal hunting. Among the other cases of apparent light production, we must refer to the beautiful sight that we often see in looking down into a shore pool. The seaweeds show fascinating changing lights as they are gently swayed by the tide. Brown changes into blue, and blue into gold. This is a physical phenomenon, difficult to analyze, but it has nothing to do with light production. Two kinds of phenomena are involved. There is a certain amount of iridescence due to the physical structure of the surface of the seaweed, just as in a peacock's feather. But there is also a fluorescence depending on deeper properties of the contents of the cells. As to the moving lights or will-o'-the-wisps sometimes seen in marshy places, they are probably due to the combustion of marsh gas or of phosphine, but the question has not been satisfactorily answered. St. Elmo's fire, which sailors sometimes see at the masthead, is caused by a brush-like discharge of electricity from a low cloud. Paragraph 2. Luminous Animals the production of light by animals is a phenomenon which occurs more widely than is generally realized. It is known in no fewer than 36 orders of animals, and there does not seem much rhyme or reason in its distribution. It is seen in various infusorians like Noctiluca, the night light, which makes the sea sparkle in the short summer darkness, in numerous stinging animals, like the fixed sea pens and the Portuguese men-of-war of the open sea, in sun-dry marine worms, in starfishes and brittle stars, in many crustaceans and insects, in some squids and in two or three mollusks, in compound ascidians like the fire-flame, pyrosoma, by whose light one can see to read, and in many fishes, especially from the deep sea. Animal luminescence does not occur above the level of fishes, for a luminous frog turned out to have dined well on fireflies, and persistent reports of certain luminous birds, e.g. herons, are probably based on inexpert observation, 
or on some fouling of the bird's feathers with luminous bacteria or fungi. There have been records of luminescence in a few freshwater animals, e.g. in the larvae of one of the harlequin flies, but it is usually maintained that animal lights occur only in the sea and on dry land. What is the nature of this animal light? Robert Boyle proved in 1667 that air is necessary for the luminescence of decaying wood and dead fishes. This implies that what occurs is of the nature of an oxidation or combustion. In 1794, the not less ingenious Italian naturalist Spallanzani showed that when dried parts of luminous jellyfishes are re-moistened, they will emit light as before. This implies that what occurs is not in the strict sense vital, it is a chemical process. But it is possible to go further. About 1887, Raphael Dubois, a French zoologist, made a very interesting experiment with a luminous bivalve called folas, which bores holes in the seashore rocks. He made a hot water and a cold water extract of the luminous tissue of the mollusk and let them stand till the light disappeared in both. He then mixed the two together and there was luminescence again. This led him to the theory that a ferment-like substance, destroyed by heating and absent therefore in the hot water extract, produces light when it operates on another substance which is oxidized. In the cold water extract, the light-producing substance had been used up by the ferment. In the hot water extract, the ferment had been destroyed, but the oxidizable material was still present. Therefore, a mixture of the two extracts resulted in the production of light for a while. The experiments of Professor Dubois have been confirmed and extended by Professor Newton Harvey, and the theory works well in regard to the three cases of animal luminescence that have been most studied, namely the boring bivalve, a small marine crustacean called Cypridina, and those luminous beetles which are properly called fireflies. The theory may be stated thus. Luminescence occurs in the presence of oxygen and water, and is due to the interaction of two different substances. One of these, the luciferase, acts like a ferment on the other, luciferin, and oxidizes it or accelerates its oxidation, with the result that light is produced, as in some other rapid chemical processes. Faraday's Contribution The history of the scientific solution of a problem is rarely simple, and we know we are leaving out some important investigations and investigators when we say that the great steps in the still partial elucidation of the problem are 1. When Robert Boyle showed that luminescence was dependent on the presence of oxygen. 2. When Spellanzani showed that luminescence was independent of the life of the animal. And 3 when Raphael Dubois made it almost certain that in Folas there is a cooperation of a ferment-like substance with a potentially luminous substance, a view confirmed by Professor Newton Harvey. But, however short our history, we cannot omit reference to the experiments of Faraday, who was extraordinarily interested in the luminescence of glowworms, in 1814, and made many experiments. His genius was evident in his endeavor, 
to ascertain whether the luminous appearance depended on the life of the fly, in his observation that no heat was sensible to the hands or to the underlip, the most delicate part of the body. His conclusions were, a, that there is a chemical substance in the glowworm which has power to shine independently of the life of the insect, b, that the luminous substance is probably a secretion of the insect, c, that the shining depends on air, and d, that the luminescence as a whole is controlled by the creature in the ordinary conditions of its manifestations. Paragraph 3. The Nature of Animal Light A body that gives off light rays because of its high temperature is said to be incandescent. But when the emission of light is due to some other cause, we use the term luminescent. All animal light is cold light, for not only is it produced apart from high temperature, but it is all light, without any heat. Thus, the luminescence of the firefly has been called the cheapest form of light, for none of the energy is lost in the form of heat, and it would be great gain if man could learn the firefly's method. Moreover, the animal light is all visible light. It has no infrared or ultraviolet rays. Yet it behaves in general like ordinary light. It affects a photographic plate. It can produce phosphorescence and fluorescence in various substances. It causes plant seedlings to bend towards it, and it stimulates the formation of chlorophyll. The firefly's light excels all human devices. It is interesting to quote a sentence from the paper in which Professor S. P. Langley and Mr. F. W. Very proved that the luminescence of the firefly is the cheapest form of light, meaning by this phrase that in the transformation of energy which results in the insect's glow, there is greater economy than in any other known transformation that results in light. Resuming then what we have said, we repeat that nature produces this cheapest light at about one four hundredth part of the cost of the energy which is expended in the candle flame, and at but an insignificant fraction of the cost of the electric light or the most economic light which has yet been devised. This was in 1890. And that, finally, there seems to be no reason why we are forbidden to hope that we may yet discover a method since such a one certainly exists and is in use on a small scale, of obtaining an enormously greater result than we now do from our present ordinary means of producing light. Different Colors of Animal Light A little must be said in regard to the different colors of animal light, though we are unable to make any suggestion as to their significance, especially as they may be red, blue, and green in one and the same animal at different times. Green is illustrated by the glowworm and some brittle stars, blue by the Italian firefly, red by the girdle of Venus and some salps, and lilac by some alcyonarian corals. In general it may be said that in marine luminescent animals the commonest colors are blue and light green. A purple light has been ascribed to the swollen proboscis of the lantern fly, Falgora, but this insect is not really luminescent. Different modes of light production. 
the animal light may be produced only in situ in certain cells where the luminous substance is produced as in the night light of the sea or the glowworm in its dell of dew or there may be a luminous secretion that exudes over the surface of the body and spreads into the sea or forms a trail on the ground this is seen very clearly in some small crustaceans cope pods where the light is not visible until there is actual exudation of the light-producing substance or substances. In many cases, however, as in some fishes, some cuttlefishes, and some higher crustaceans, the light streams out from elaborate luminous organs, and the remarkable thing is that these are often like eyes. In front of the light-producing cells there may be a lens, sometimes triple. Behind them there may be a reflector. Round the sides of the organ, and behind the reflector, there is often a dark envelope shutting off the light from the tissues of the animal itself. And then there is a stimulating and controlling nerve. Now, this is all very suggestive of an eye, which has its lens, its reflector, we think of the cat's eye shining in the dark, and its starkly pigmented envelope, which makes a camera. In the luminous organ, as Professor Newton Harvey neatly says, the important transformation of energy is chemiphotic, from chemical changes to light, wherein the eye it is photochemical, from light to chemical processes. Of course, the nerve of the luminous organ is of the stimulating or controlling sort, carrying a message out, while the nerve of the eye is sensory or afferent, carrying messages into the brain. It seems important to emphasize the resemblance between an eye and a luminous organ, for in the eye there is a direct conversion of light energy into chemical processes, just as in the laboratory of the green leaf. And what is most remarkable in luminous living creatures is the direct conversion of chemical energy into light, and that without passing through heat, and quite apart from the application of heat. When the dredge comes up The Marquis de Follin, who led one of the French deep-sea expeditions, describes the surprise and delight of the naturalists on board the exploring vessel when they first saw the dredge brought up in the darkness from a great abyss. There were many coral animals, shrub-like in form, which threw off flashes of light, beside which the twenty torches used for working by were pale. Some of these corals were carried into the laboratory where the lights were put out. There was a moment of magic, the most marvellous spectacle that was given to man to admire. Every point of the chief branches and twigs of the coral isis threw out brilliant jets of fire, now paling, now reviving again, to pass from violet to purple, from red to orange, from bluish to different tones of green, and sometimes to the white of overheated iron. The pervading color was greenish, the others appeared only in transient flashes, and melted into the green again. Minute by minute the glory lessened as the animals died, and at the end of a quarter of an hour they were all like dead and withered branches. But while they were at their best, one could read by their light the finest print of a newspaper at a distance of six yards. In the corals, the luminescence was diffuse, in other cases it was localized in organs. 
Thus, one of the cuttlefishes had about 20 luminous spots, like gleaming jewels, ultramarine, ruby red, sky blue, and silvery. The Illumination of the Sea In Huxley's account of his voyage in the rattlesnake, there is a fine description of the illumination of the sea by the pillars of fire called pyrosomes. The sky was clear but moonless, and the sea calm, and a more beautiful sight can hardly be imagined than that presented from the deck of the ship as she drifted, hour after hour, through this shoal of miniature pillars of fire gleaming out of the dark sea, with an ever-waning, ever-brightening, soft bluish light, as far as the eye could reach on every side. The fire-flames floated deep, and it was only with difficulty that some were procured for examination and placed in a bucketful of sea-water. The phosphorescence was intermittent, periods of darkness alternating with periods of brilliancy. The light commenced at one point, apparently on the surface of one of the members of the fire-flame colony, and gradually spread from this centre in all directions. Then the whole was lighted up, it remained brilliant for a few seconds, and then gradually faded and died away, until the whole colony was dark again. Friction at any point induces the light at that point, and from thence the phosphorescence spreads over the whole, while the creature is quite freshly taken. Afterwards, the illumination arising from the friction is only local. Paragraph 4. Possible Uses of Animal Lights when a living creature simply exudes a luminous secretion, or glows as it oxidizes certain complex substances in various parts of its body, it is quite possible that the luminescence is not as such of any importance in the everyday life of the creature. It may be no more than the by-play of something more vital, a side-track in the metabolism of the body. Thus, no one feels bound to search for a use of the luminescence of certain bacteria or of the eggs of fireflies. But the case is quite different when an elaborate luminous organ has been evolved. Then there must be a use. But most of the suggestions in the field are highly speculative. 1. In some cases, the luminescence may possibly serve to scare away intruders, or, if it is intermittent, to distract predatory animals. Perhaps a sea pen suddenly illumined may warn off intruders. 2. In some cases the light may be a lure attracting booty in the darkness of deep waters, and it is striking that the luminous organ of an abyssal fish is sometimes pendant on a tentacle hanging down in front of the mouth. 3. In other cases, the light may serve as a lantern, enabling deep-sea squids and fishes, for instance, to find their way about in the darkness. But this interpretation is only applicable when the hypothetical lantern is hung in an appropriate place, which is far from being generally true. 4. In many cases, the luminous organs have a very definite pattern, e.g. on the sides of the body of the fish. In the dark waters, this pattern may facilitate the recognition of kin by kin. 5. In some cases, the facts certainly suggest that the light is used as a sex signal. It is noteworthy that the toadfish, Porictis, 
is luminous only during the breeding season. In the glowworm, the female of the British species Lampyris noctiluca is wingless and creeps on grassy banks. She is more luminous than the male beetle, which flies about overhead. The intermittent luminous glow streams forth from two strata of cells, well provided with air tubes, near the posterior end of the body of the adult, but it is also seen in the larvae and on the eggs. The fireflies are beetles related to our glowworms, and the crowds of shining males dancing in the air in the summer twilight are familiar and beautiful sights in warm countries. In the case of the Italian firefly, Luciola italica, the female is a small-eyed, weak-legged creature compared with the male, but she has wings and luminescence. She is very rarely seen, except when she attracts round about her on the ground a brilliant circle of ardent suitors. It seems to the human spectator that flashes of light from the one sex to the other play some part in the mating but there is no certainty. In the meadows around Bologna, the female firefly may sometimes be seen in the evening among the grass. Numerous males fly about overhead. It looks as if the approach of a male served as the stimulus to the female to let her light shine forth. It looks as if he saw her signal. These things are difficult to prove. At any rate, he is soon beside her, circling round like a dancing elf. But one suitor is not enough. The female attracts a levy. Her suitors form a circle around her on the ground, and flashes pass to and fro. The luminous rhythm of the males is more rapid, with briefer flashes, while that of the female is more prolonged, but with longer intervals. In a large Silenese glowworm or firefly, Lamprophorus tenebrosus, the larvae are luminous as well as the winged male and wingless female, and the color of the light is emerald green. The female seems to signal to the male, but a curious point is that the male often shuts off his light when approaching a calling female. Paragraph 5. Animal Heat If a thermometer is inserted into a beehive, it shows a rise of temperature. Where is the heat coming from? The answer must be that the movements of the muscles of the hundreds of bees are producing heat, which raises the temperature of the air in the hive. The chief source of animal heat is to be found in the activity of the muscles. On a very cold day, one sees cabmen beating their arms on their body in order to keep warm. They are quickening the circulation by exercise, but they are also making the muscle engines work rapidly, so that much heat is produced. The bee is a cold-blooded animal, that is, of changeful temperature tending to approach that of the surroundings. The heat produced by the bees passes out into the air, and would be wasted in winter, were not the hive a confined space. But the cabman is warm-blooded, that is, of constant temperature, and in very cold weather he is able to adjust his body temperature to the circumstances by increasing the eternal production of heat, and still more by lessening the loss from the skin. For the cold brings about a constriction of the blood vessels in the skin, less heat is lost, and the man looks cold. 
Conversely, on a very hot day, a dog increases its loss of heat by putting out its tongue. Only in birds and mammals is there this power of regulating production and loss of heat, which is called warm-bloodedness. The nerve center for its regulation is in the corpus striatum of the brain. It may be noted that shivering is an irregular kind of contraction brought about by commands coming from the nervous system to the muscles, ordering the production of more heat. All living involves oxidations or combustions, and some of the animal heat is due to the chemical processes which go on ceaselessly throughout the body. But these account for only a small fraction of the total amount. In the main, the animal heat comes from the muscles, and it is important to notice that they produce heat even when the body is at rest. This happens, for instance, when we are asleep, when there are not many muscles actually working except those of the heart and those concerned in breathing movements. The amount of heat produced during sleep is not so great as during waking hours, and everyone knows how cold a sleeper becomes in winter if he has not enough of blankets, how dangerous it is to fall asleep in the snow, and how animals take precautions of many kinds to secure comfortable resting places. In the contraction of a muscle there are two chapters. The first is on the whole a physical change. Each fibre becomes shorter and broader, as if some spring had been relaxed. No oxygen is used up, no carbonic acid is given off, nor any heat, but a substance called lactic acid is split off from the muscle substance. The potential energy or tension of the resting muscle is converted by contraction into the work done, and the splitting off of lactic acid is somehow concerned with the transformation. But to restore the potential energy, so that the muscle fiber can go on contracting, the lactic acid has to be put back in its original place. This restoration process requires energy, and that is supplied by the oxidation of blood sugar and perhaps some fat. Much oxygen is used up, carbon dioxide is given off, and heat is evolved. Thus we come to the main source of the production of animal heat. But it must be noted again that heat is produced in a resting warm-blooded animal by the slight contractions which keep up what is called the reflex tone of the muscles. Moreover, if part of the tension of the contracting muscle is not converted to external work, part of the energy will be degraded into heat. Paragraph 6. Animal Electricity Electric Animals Electrical changes are known to occur in connection with the activity of various parts of animals, for example muscles, nerves, the retina of the eye, and glands. Similarly, when the carnivorous plant known as Venus flytrap shuts its leaf on an insect, there is an electrical change comparable to that which occurs when we contract a muscle, a fine instance of the unity of vital processes. Electrical changes have also been observed in connection with the movements of the sensitive plant, the rotation of the living matter inside the cells of the stonewort nitella, and even in the ordinary upbuilding of carbon compounds that occurs in the green leaf of any plant. It looks as if electrical changes were associated with active vital processes in general, 
and this should be kept in mind when we pass to special cases where this transformation of energy becomes, so to speak, dominant and of high value in itself, as when the electric eel gives a shock. The Electric Ray The electric ray, Torpedo marmorata, of the Mediterranean, is a smooth-skinned relative of the skate and may be a yard long by two feet broad. It has two large electric organs between the front of the head and the gills, extending through the thickness of the body and somewhat like flat kidneys in shape. Each consists of thousands, it may be half a million, of transparent perpendicular prisms or electric plates, separated by partitions. Each prism is due to the transformation of a muscle fiber and its nerve endings. When the fish is excited, the dorsal end of each plate is electrically positive to the ventral end, and a succession of shocks passes from the under to the upper surface of the head. If the fish is grasped, a very distinct and, indeed, painful current passes up the arm, and this is enough to benumb or even kill animals that come into close quarters with the torpedo. Repeated discharges weaken the strength of the shocks. It is interesting to find that ordinary skate have two small electric organs about halfway up the tail. They are probably organs in process of evolution. The Electric Eel In shallow parts of the Orinoco, Amazons and associated rivers, and in the marshes nearby, there lives the well-known electric eel, Gymnotus electricus, which is able to stun a beast of burden. The fish may attain a length of 8 feet and a weight of 50 pounds. About four-fifths of the length is tail, and on each side of this there lies a huge electric organ, consisting of transformed muscular tissue supplied by numerous nerves from the spinal cord. The anterior and posterior ends of the longitudinally disposed muscle columns become oppositely electrified, and the current passes from the tail to the head. When the electric eel bends its body so that the head and the tail touch different parts of the same fish, a very strong shock is given. Repeated discharges, which may be reflex or voluntarily, weaken the strength of the shocks, but the strongest are sufficient to kill the prey. Other electric organs have been found in the big-brained mormyrs, mormyridae, of the Nile. The organ is situated on each side of the tail region and is derived as usual from transformed muscular tissue. The shock is feeble. The electric catfish. Quite different from all the other electric fishes is the electric catfish, Malopterurus electricus found in rivers of tropical Africa and in the lower Nile. It is a sluggish, light-avoiding creature, sometimes a yard long, able to give shocks powerful enough to kill other fishes. The electrical apparatus is unique in being formed of modified skin glands, which form a greasy mantle all round the fish between the skin and the muscles. It is controlled by a single nerve fiber arising from one huge ganglion cell on each side at the front end of the spinal cord. The electromotive force of the shock in this fish amounts to 450 volts, which is very high. The shock given by a malopterurus or a gymnotus to a man who steps on it with his naked foot is enough to knock him down. 
There are said to be about 50 different kinds of fishes that give electric shocks, but only a few of these have been carefully studied. In the cases that have been investigated, with the exception of the electric catfish, the electric organ consists of transformed muscle and the associated nerve endings. It is important to emphasize the fact that an ordinary muscular contraction is associated with an electric charge, and that the same is observed in glandular activity. What is ordinarily a trivial accompaniment of an important change becomes in the electric organ the main issue. The electric organ discharges electricity, not as a current, but in a number of short shocks, lasting in torpedo a small fraction of a second, and it is interesting to notice that strychnine, which throws the muscles of an animal into convulsions by acting on the nervous system, causes the electric ray to give off shock after shock in rapid succession until the creature is exhausted. Biological Conclusion There remains much that is puzzling in regard to the production of light and electricity by animals. In many cases, it is impossible to suggest what use there may be in the luminescence. In many cases, an electric organ also baffles us by its apparent uselessness. The general idea that emerges is this, that a merely accessory by-play or by-product may persist for a long time in the wake of some process or result of vital significance, but that the by-play or by-product may be seized upon, accentuated and exaggerated when the conditions of life give it vital significance and survival value. End of section 10